0: Hello, everyone. Amelia Taylor-Hockberg, Archonnex Editorial Manager here. As you may have already heard, we've been releasing the live interviews we recorded during our Next Up event series held at Jai & Jai Gallery in Los Angeles and at the Chicago Architecture Biennial as Archonnex Sessions Mini Sessions. We've got more Next Up Mini Sessions interviews for you now, but due to a technical error in Chicago, they weren't recorded live. To catch up on previous interviews, make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes. All right, enjoy this Next Up interview.
1: Wondering, coming out of it now, it's been, I guess, two, three weeks, how was your experience with the Biennial in general?
0: I thought, I mean, I really loved Chicago and I thought the Biennial was really interesting. Well, I guess for the obvious reasons that everybody said, you know, that they didn't include the usual suspects, but instead included people like me. So I kind of liked that. But also I, I found the the choice of venue was super important, because I learned while I was there that it's, I guess, the only cultural building that, that everybody can use and everybody can enter. And so, you know, when we're setting up, you would see all these people like, you know, homeless people using the bathrooms and, and taking their time and doing whatever they need to do. So that was, I thought that was really, really interesting. So I thought this, in, in reading the reviews, this got a bit lost. The fact that they kind of included, you know, like theaster Gates and and all the kind of projects that he's doing around Chicago, and then this aspect that the Biennial was positioned in this building. So, in general, I really liked it. I thought they did a great job.
1: Uh, Francois Roche, who I think is a friend of yours, right? Yeah, yeah. He's been kind of critical about the Biennial afterwards. Actually, speaking directly to that, thinking, saying that uh, the Biennial has had kind of a anesthetizing quality sweeping away the homeless people and stuff that your experience was different than that?
0: Well, um, I mean, that only happened during the two days of the preview mm-hmm. where you actually had to have a pass to enter the building mm-hmm. and not even, I mean, you could go into the lobby, but not inside the building. So that was, I mean, if you, if you notice the day that we had the interview, the lobby was kind of half inhabited by, by its usual kind of population already. So. Um, maybe this was just an impression that during the two days of the preview.
1: Uh huh, definitely.
0: But also, like Francois likes to, to point out these things. Actually, what, what happened was we were in a panel with uh, Andre Jaque and uh, Fake Office and, and other people. And um, I, I quoted, I saw Francois in the audience, and I quoted him on something. And then he kind of en- entered the discussion. He likes to be provocative as well. I, I don't know. There is a kind of political discussion about uh, Rahm Emanuel, how he's like gentrifying the city or doing this, doing that. Mm. But um, he also did this biennial, and, and I can't imagine that it's a bad thing for Chicago to have this kind of discussion going on. Mm-hmm, definitely. And um, he, as a mayor, embraced it. So, whatever he's doing, I mean, I'm, I'm all for like experimenting with cities. And, and trying out things. And gentrification is a kind of big part of cities because cities are, are businesses. They're not like they used to be. You know, cities have to attract people and they have to generate money. And so, unfortunately, that's how the world is. Like the, the, the municipalities in, in Stockholm, where I was working on the Vespi project, mm-hmm. they, each municipality has a CEO. So a kind of financial manager. Very interesting. Very um, interesting. And that's the country that kind of invented, you know, welfare state and all these things. So yeah. that's how that's how the world is going. I mean, to complain about it and, and kind of go against it is, I don't know. Retrograde? Maybe retrograde, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, another thing I think that is kind of interesting and touching on what you're just talking about a bit is, in a way, you're part of this generation or this first grouping of architects who are as at home or perhaps more at home in a biennial or exhibit than in a, in a a traditional construction site um, or at least a Mm -hmm. traditional office. I don't know how many architects are actually on the site that often, but do you feel a commonality with the other participants in this?
0: I don't, uh, I'm not used to being in architecture exhibitions Mm -hmm. so much. So yeah, I mean, certain people, I really loved what they did and, and, um, like Andre Hake, maybe. Mm-hmm. I, I loved the performance and I thought it was interesting that it was kind of anti-architectural in a way but also sort of hallucinatory like speaking about many things and stuff. So yeah, I mean different people I really like what they do and I felt at home and I think that's it's interesting that you that you speak about uh, the fact that we're sort of inhabiting exhibitions more and I thought I mean today I was thinking that uh, during all the discussions in Chicago, the exhibition wasn't addressed enough. Mm -hmm. The fact that they took this kind of big building and put these big objects inside rooms and a sort of variety of things. and Because finally, it is an exhibition. It is there to kind of draw people. It's not, you know, architects tend to see these exhibitions as as, uh, ways to promote what they do. But I think it, it also has to kind of stand as a, as an exhibition in itself. That's the kind of final product in this case.
1: Definitely. There's almost two camps. One treats the exhibit as a means to represent their other work. And then the other tries to consider the exhibition as, itself as a, an, a, a place to kind of act architecture or yeah. create the work of architecture.
0: Like the Su Fujimoto piece was was that? Mm-hmm. Kind of acting out of architecture? Even the I think even the moss piece with a kind of big house, that was kind of interesting because it was like a a blown up model. Mm -hmm. I thought that was interesting. Like the Bow Wow Wow was, was, um, it wasn't photogenic. It was kind of impossible to to photograph, but I think it was interesting. Yeah, I agree. Somehow in that building. And it was kind of a project for that exhibition.
1: Touching on your, your installation itself, which was entitled Fantasy Ruins, Bags, Body Parts, and Be Below. And in some way, I think sectioned into those three parts Literally, especially in the room, it was sectioned into those three parts, but then it seemed also kind of thematically or conceptually. Can you go through bags, body parts, and bipolo?
0: Yeah. So the, the bags kind of comes from this older project that, that was called Domesticated Mountain, which was about um, the suburban home in the time of online shopping, where suburbia as a kind of typology lost its, you know, was kind of invented to collaborate with shopping and with, with logistics and with transportation of goods and so suburbia was out close to where the goods were traveling on the infrastructure like on the highways and stuff and there were shopping malls so it was all kind of part of a of a ecosystem of shopping and also the suburban home or the single family home was very much used by architects as a kind of manifesto vehicle so like villa savoie kind of was the perfect vehicle for corbusier or all these kind of famous villas Mm -hmm. of the 1920s. So then in that project, I look at what happens to the suburban home in the time of online shopping, and then kind of talking about desire a bit and and shopping as a kind of fulfillment of desire. And when you shop online, that desire sometimes expires even before you open the package because you've already kind of... You wanted that T-shirt, and then you don't want it anymore.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: And then, so I was kind of interested in all aspects of, of shopping and, and home. And so I was trying out these funny things like putting a, a supermarket plastic bag on top of a little 3D-printed domino frame and then 3D scanning the whole thing to see what would come out of it. And both are kind of ephemeral. Like In Greece, people built these domino frames and, and along the way decide what the house is going to be like. And sometimes they don't even have the money to finish the house. So that's the first thing they would build, the concrete frame. Mm-hmm. And then also the shopping bag is like the first thing a, a homeless person will, will pick up to use to put their things in, you know, because they're like walking around. So they kind of, their belongings are not in a house, but in a series of, of uh, supermarket bags. So it was kind of experiment of, of uh, playing with that. And also somehow slyly referencing Kiesler and the endless... Uh, house oh yeah because these shopping bags when you 3d scan them the the scanner doesn't know the iphone doesn't know that it's not a solid thing and not that it's it's plastic so it kind of renders it as a rock Mm. so it was a kind of reference to that because it's kistler 100 years and stuff so i i was kind of playing with that in the studio and then there's one that is also cardboard box on top of a domino frame and that's the box where the 3D printer material come in. Oh, wow. And so I was kind of I wrote that it's if the materials for your home comes in a box, then the box is the, the home of your home. Yeah. Or something like that. So kind of
1: These are kind of layers of, of outside that kind of keep going.
0: Yeah. I mean these all these these um, models or I probably shouldn't call them models because they're not representations of something to be built. They're kind of miniature buildings rather, so it's mm. not like each one is a project that I intend to build sometime. Yeah. The, the object that I displayed is a kind of the final product. And Hans-Ehrlich was saying that I should find some kind of neologism for them, mm. but I haven't found that yet. So like miniatures. Hanjo joach Yes. So mm. in lieu of that, non-existent neologists might call them miniatures or bibelot. Uh, bibelot is, is a French term for the sort of useless object that uh, commemorate stuff. So like if you go on a trip and they will be selling like, if you come on a trip to Athens, there will be shops selling like miniature Parthenons. And so you buy one because you went to Athens and you put it in your house to remind you that you went there. And I was also thinking of even on the scale of a city, cities produce these bibelots in in full scale, like in Athens, they, they produced all these buildings for the Olympics. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the deal that in every Olympics or in every kind of grand event, they build all these big things. And then sometimes that's their own function. Now all these Olympic structures are just reminding us that the Olympics happened, but they're not used for anything.
1: So almost like follies, accidental follies.
0: Yeah. Accidental follies. And, and, um, I also like the term below because it's very provocative. It's like tchotchke. Mm-hmm. So it's a kind of totally useless building. So I was kind of also wanted to approach that territory. So these, the, the bibelo section is is um, mostly things that I found, either either things from my parents' home that I grew up with, kind of sort of useless tchotchkes, mm-hmm. or things that I find in the flea market that people have kind of discarded. And then I... I look at a kind of flower-shaped vase and, and I sort of imagine it as a building and sort of I add a staircase and a door and windows. So yeah, in that series, I'm kind of turning these small objects into, uh, into houses. Mm-hmm. And um, the body part is it's more um, sort of the psychoanalysis section. I mean, I, I, it, the first one I did was Hand House in two thousand. Ten, I think, for for Pinup Magazine, which was a kind of portrait of Los Angeles, the mm-hmm. houses. They really did the case study houses, and um, I one part of the house was a collage of, of uh, sort of short tweets about Los Angeles. So, let's say the waitress that came to LA to become an actress, and then there's a hand sticking out of the mountain. It's holding a sort of platter. So, um, yeah, I was just kind of experimenting using body parts and, and um, building parts to make buildings. And also in, in Greek, the, the domino frame is is called skeletos, mm. which is skeleton, like the, the bones. And it's psychoanalytic because like some of them, like one of them, I realized that it was, I, I 3D scanned this um, female mannequin, like shop mannequin, mm. and I um, started adding staircases and, and, and stuff, and then I it had a kind of um, the house ended up in a place where you jump off, so I, I called it uh, House for My Mother. So I think the, the body parts are more like things that I understand what they, what they mean once I do them. Mm-hmm. There's one with a foot sticking out of a, of a perimeter wall, and that's kind of also about death. So I think the body parts are mostly dealing with death, but it's just a way to yeah, get that out on a form.
1: That kind of intimate relationship you have with the objects you're creating, um, it seems almost like that necessitates this small scale or this kind of more, yeah, I guess a, a smaller scale. Um,
0: yeah, I mean, these objects, is, it's the, the sort of more, most private part of my practice. It's the thing that, that I, I mean, I've been, I've been making these kind of things. I started in the 90s with online communities, uh, sort of building out my sketchbook, let's say. And then I started 3D printing them because you know somebody forgot to pay the hosting for an online community, and we lost like 40 buildings. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's like 3D printing. I decided to 3D print them because that was the only way to have a physical object that was quasi digital. Mm-hmm. So still retaining some some of that 3D program connection rather than a kind of thing that I would make with my hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that, but so these are like my sketchbook in a way. They're not things that I make. Because I need to have something to show, it's more like I, whenever I have an idea, I make one. And also I have a kind of backlog of things that I've 3D scanned and they're waiting to become buildings. It's this kind of ongoing thing.
1: So then I guess the other aspect of your practice, the other really dominant one, would be uh, your role as a curator. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit about your Super Studio show?
0: Yeah. The, it's actually called Super Super Studio. Because the idea for that show was that it would be half works of Superstudio from from the late late sixties until let's say late seventies, and the other half would be contemporary art inserted in between, people that could seem to be inspired by Superstudio or relate to Superstudio. So I was in charge of the the part where um, I, I inserted contemporary art into the show and selected artists, not really people that, that, um, whose work is, is visually connected to Superstudio, but rather that um, I interpreted Superstudio as a kind of series of, of ideas and not so much formal things, but um, almost um, premonitions. Mm. So like the Continuous Monument, the way they described it, is a kind of technological surface where you don't need any more objects and you just live off the technological amp aspects of this surface, mm. you could say that that's the internet today. Totally. So the Super Super Studio show is is running until um, January 16 at PAC in Milan. And the other two curators are Vittorio Pizzigoni and Walter Scelsi. They did the, the kind of archival Super Studio thing, just to have some facts also in there, to be nice, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but that was really, I mean... Super City is one of the one of the things that that I really find interesting in the sort of recent history of architecture. Just because a lot of the things they dealt with were not just about buildings, but also about you know life and ceremony and death and education and all these um, aspects. So um, yeah, I'm I'm always fascinated with their work, and I always find it almost contemporary. So I, I don't I wouldn't even treat it as archival. I would think like this is. Stuff that that we're still dealing with.
1: I certainly agree with that. Super studio, absolutely incredible work. But when you're when you're organizing a show, stu- were c- you sorry? Yeah, yeah. I was
0: gonna I was gonna talk about curating in general. Mm, perfect. yeah. I mean, I I kind of fell into curating through blogging. I had a blog for many many years. It's still there, but I never updated. I just put like recent projects now. But um, for a long time, I was you know. Think of what post should I make, and I would make like a post about, you know, I don't know, well, maybe Superstudio or um, Guy here, the French architect that I'm always a bit obsessed with. And so when you're, when you're selecting what to put in a blog, you put images of things in a sequence and you kind of create a narrative. And so it's not that different from an exhibition. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I had been working with curators ever since I, I finished uh, SciArt, the first kind of job that I had as an intern at Magazin, the center d'Art contemporain in Magazin in Grenoble. Mm-hmm. So I was always half in the art world and half in, or half in the exhibition world, let's say. Yeah. So curating came kind of naturally. It's, it, it was a progression from making the space for an exhibition. And um, when you're... Both making the space and selecting the things that go there—it's like you have all the the tools at your disposal. So you can, you know, make a space for a specific object, or make the space first and then decide what objects would work with that space. And also, curating extends to, I guess, my architecture practice because I'm not—I always say there's enough things have been designed already, and they're kind of all out there at our disposal, and maybe even enough buildings. So maybe we just need to be recombining them or selecting the right ones.
1: Becoming bricolage, bricoleurs.
0: Yeah, yeah. Which is also, you know, a way to, to be, yeah, maybe you're not making as many products when you're uh, dealing with bricolage.
1: And so that kind of implicitly involves issues of waste and excess, which I think pop up again and again in your other work.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, like, I mean, on on the simplest level, like when you let's say you ask young students today to come up with a to bring like a photograph of a flower, nobody's going to go out and look for flowers to photograph. Mm-hmm. Everybody basically just Google things. Mm-hmm. So that's also kind of curating, no? Yeah, definitely. Like selecting things. So yeah, curating comes kind of from from that, maybe from the internet again.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm interested in the kind of. The way that you approach this work where architecture really gets expanded to kind of allow for all these new things. And it's not, I don't think for you, just purely this subjective way of working, but also it's its a way of reacting to external phenomena like the development of the Internet and other new technologies. And I wonder if you think that your way of working, your method is something that's perhaps iterable. The other architects could also enter into in a day and age where there's just less. Yeah.
0: Build. I never really thought of, of it that way that, that, um, I don't know. I mean, I'm always, I guess, curious by nature. So whatever I do is like, I, I, it's things that I'm interested in at the time. Mm -hmm. And I also found out kind of the hard way that producing buildings wasn't really for me that, that it was the, the process of, at least in Greece, like the process of making buildings is like so slow. Mm -hmm. Well, now it's not slow. It's like, doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, uh, because nobody builds anything right now. But um, the process of making a building, like by the time that it's built and it's done, let's say, you've kind of forgotten what it was about, or it doesn't matter anymore.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, when I'm when I'm teaching, that's what I I try to tell students is to kind of think of what they want to do and not really teach like my method of doing things, but rather for I think for each person, like everybody finds what they're into. Mm-hmm. And that's going to make their work more fun and then they're going to be interested in it rather than be obliged to do it. So I guess I, I approach architecture not as a job, but as a kind of a hobby mm. or a kind of passion or like an amateur. That's, I guess, I, I would summarize it that way. I mean, and, and that's really the opposite of what what architects are kind of required to do. You know, they always need to um, prove how professional they are and how many you know, people they have in their office and how, what capacity their office can handle, et cetera. So I don't know if, it's, if my way of doing stuff is, is the good way, mm-hmm. definitely. But maybe there's going to be in the future like two types of architects. You know, There's going to be the kind of architects that make the buildings and then the architects that, that think about buildings.
1: Yeah, definitely. Circling back to the Chicago Biennial, it, what seemed kind of like this hovering question in the air on for both of those two new emerging architecture roles is kind of the, the larger economy, which will sustain them. On the one hand, t- traditional architects, I think are increasingly finding it difficult to get commissions. Um, and then of course this kind of new form of architect, the architect who only thinks about architecture, if you will, has to develop their own kind of economic support. And I think that increasingly that's been the art world, but, uh, do you think that's something that's sustainable to kind of create this micro architecture that operates within the art world of festivals and biennials and exhibits?
0: You know, also the art world is, is kind of a very questionable place because yeah. it's kind of market driven. And then you see more and more, you know, these young collectors flipping their, the works they bought in the last fair and, and then their artists, you know, value drops radically. Mm-hmm. So that's, it's not like the art world is a kind of heaven where you, we all want to escape to. I guess, yeah, there is like room for, I mean, that's, maybe that's why my practice is, is so kind of schizophrenic. Um So I, like one part, I, I sit in the studio and I make this bibelo and then the next day I'm like, advising on an urban planning project in Sweden and the Mm -hmm. next day I'm like designing an exhibition or making the space or curating an exhibition. I'm not sure I could sustain one of these practices by itself. Mm -hmm. Not that I want to. I mean, obviously I don't want to, but I don't think that 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 would be sustainable. I don't want to be specialized in anything. Mm -hmm. So maybe combining practices is a a way to go. And also architecture education really gives you the tools to, to do that personally, I find architecture ex- education to be more interesting than art education more kind of you know it teaches you to organize stuff and to analyze things uh, and to kind of analyze structures and and be kind of critical mm-hmm. i mean art education does too, but there's a kind of old fashioned sort of um industrial revolution thing going on in art education where all these students learn how to become say, contemporary artists mm-hmm. and how to fall into that kind of workload of being a contemporary artist and having their connections and stuff. So maybe architecture, is, it's good if it's a bit outside of that. Mm-hmm. It's good to be an outsider when you're an architect.
1: I think I so. Think. <laughs> and congratulations, by the way. I read some rave reviews about your showing at Freeze.
0: speaking of which. Ah, yeah, thank you. That was actually an old piece from 2007, mm-hmm. but um, it deals exactly with the kind of the archeology span of the internet or the, it was, I guess it was perceived as a very current piece, which I liked.
1: It's called Inflatable Ruins, right?
0: It's called Soft Ruin.
1: Soft Ruin, sorry.
0: And then the building is, the video is called uh, Building an Electronic Ruin. So I was on, in Second Life and, and trying to teach a domino frame how to collapse and become a ruin. Because I, I kind of realized at some point, looking at my old work, that all this kind of... I used to do a lot of things in online communities in the late 90s on um, a classroom called Active Worlds that still exists, actually. And I, I just like thought that these, you know, the screenshots from these times or the videos, like nothing had... time hadn't passed. And even on a physical object, a bit of time passes. So I, I kind of became obsessed with the idea of making the electronic ruin.
1: I think that's really... F- fascinating because nowadays online, I mean, I think there was definitely a period where it was all kind of a wash of new, but now, now you can stumble upon an old Geocities site or an old kind of online community. And it does appear as a ruin. Um,
0: yeah. I mean, I saw my Friendster profile from oh, wow. 2003 and I had like 32 friends, which at the time, you know, Friendster was like the first kind of real social media where yeah, you I remember. Could, <laughs> you know, make friends and do all these things or maybe one of the first. And so that was exciting then. And it was like, it seemed like a lot, you know, you had to invite people to join it and and stuff. And that was really kind of the, you know, the old photos were there from the time and like the friends were still there and nobody can delete it. So it's kind of a a real ruin in a way.
1: Yeah, And I think right now there's a, the internet's increasingly becoming kind of smoothed out as this internet 2.0, more homogenized and templatized uh, space. Is that something you perceive as well?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I did a kind of lecture once about inhabiting a template. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, making, you know, I mean, the domino frame is, is sort of the constant reference in my work, just because I, I grew up with these things all around. Like, and so making parallels with Corbusier proposing the domino frame is a kind of international style that you would just fill in with your building and it would, act as a template and then facebook of course providing you a template page with your cover page and your profile picture etc and sort of making parallels between those two things that's i mean in a way that's what we do with everything no like we inhabit templates for everything Mm -hmm. there are of course like on the internet now you you have these um miniature trends like in one week in the year there will be like a kind of new thing where you can put your face on a, like a texture map your face on a kind of dancing avatar, and everybody will be posting these for like five days.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it will literally last five days, you know? Yeah, I think that's really fascinating, like how fast the, the turnaround is uh, for these kind of things that become, let's say, viral. Yeah, And that's also always one of the interests that I have with the internet is this kind of viral economy as opposed to, let's say, the, the desire-based economy of the past, where um, you would kind of choose the particular car because it was red and shinier than the other car. And so the viral economy is like, you, you don't really know exactly what you're going to be choosing or what's going to become a hit. It's, it's a bit more absurd. Irrational. Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you, Andreas. All right, thank you.